Good morning. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 17, please. Let's go before the Lord now and let's pray. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, dear Lord God, thank you so much that we can be gathered together here now around this time where we need to listen to your word. And Lord, my prayer is that the preaching of your word would be powerful, not because of my exertions, but because it's written by you and it is your message to your children and your message to the entire world for the edification of your children and for the informing and calling to salvation of the world. And I pray, Lord, that we would all just listen attentively, worshipfully for your voice. I'll speak, but it's not me that any of us want to hear, including myself. It is you we wish to hear from. And I pray, Lord God, that your voice to us would be clear in the preaching of your scriptures. Thank you for giving this to us. Help us to love it. Take it so seriously. I thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things that actually comes out of this passage of scripture is the importance of the scriptures in your life. Really, the supremacy of Scripture over everything. And before I read it, I just want to say that just a thought that occurred to me this week was that reading the Bible and studying the Bible is hard. It's always hard. It's hard when you're new to it, especially maybe, right? Because you've not read it before and you see it's a very unusually large book and God has something to say to us on every single page. And so you start to read it. And my counsel to people is always start in the beginning. And when something hangs you up, just keep going. Because my own experience as a new believer was that's what I did. And I eventually came to something else that helped me to understand what it was that I didn't understand before. But it's hard And what really occurred to me this week is that reading God's Word never stops being hard. It always requires diligence. I find myself reading the Bible now, and when I read it, my mind starts to drift to what the conclusion of the passage is. I don't know know if that makes sense, but it's like there are, I mean, obviously I've read the whole thing many times, but but there are some passages that I have committed to memory and, and I find myself reading and in my head I'm able to just wander, even though I'm looking at it, I'm able to just wander to what the conclusion of the passage is while I'm trying to read the words. You ever, ever have experiences like that? Where, where, or even, even if it's not that, you're able to like read a book and your head is able to go somewhere else even while you're still able to read. I don't know what that is. There are people that have degrees who can like explain what that is to me. I don't know. But, but in any case, uh, my point is that the, the conclusion, the thing that that taught me is that reading the Bible is hard, and it always is. 
And I think there's something that can be helpful for Christians about recognizing that and accepting it and then taking that fact. I mean, maybe there's a small percentage of the population for whom just reading the Bible comes easily. I'm not, or maybe it's a big percentage and I'm just blind to all of it, but I'm, I'm not part of it. It's difficult. And the thing is, though, it's infinitely rewarding. The scriptures, the scriptures, and this passage will make it clear, the scriptures come to us not from any man. God used men to compose the Bible. God has used men through the centuries to translate the Bible and preserve it and pass it down. But all of that is the work of God. The authorship of Scripture belongs to God. And the work that it does in our minds and in our hearts is the work of God. And so I just want to encourage you with that as we begin because this in front of us is one of those passages of Scripture that for me was like I've read this and I've read this and I've read this and, and I could probably quote it from memory and, and, and still I find myself when I apply, apply the right diligence and effort to it, I find God reminding me of things that maybe I've forgotten and I find God teaching me things that maybe I've not seen before for whatever reason, even though I've been a Christian for 30 years. And when you get like some insight from God because you've diligently sought him, you know, he lives in you. And when you're reading and studying and praying and you get some insight from the scriptures from God that even if you've been a Christian longer than me and I've been one for over 30 years, uh, you just, it's just a great blessing, you know? But, but when Paul wrote to Timothy and told him about his study of God's word, he told him to be diligent and present yourself approved to God. You know, not a hobbyist, but a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, right? right? Not a hobbyist or not, not like uh, someone who's being entertained. That's not what the scriptures are. It's not entertainment or a hobby. He, Paul told Timothy to be a workman who does not need to be ashamed and can rightly divide God's word. And the, 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 the key ingredient in that recipe was diligence. And diligence is applied to things that are hard, right? And so once you accept that and recognize it and pray and ask God for strength, God will meet you. God wants to teach you. Jesus said when he left, he would send the teacher to live inside of you. So now you apply your diligence to reading and studying God's word and God will meet you there and he will raise you up. That's the pre-sermon sermon. Now here's the sermon. Ready? Luke chapter, uh, Mark, nope, not Mark, not Luke. Matthew, which book are we reading? Good. Okay, just making sure. Okay, good. Here we go. Matthew 17, verse 1. Now after, nope, nope, I want to read verse 28. I know it says 17, 1 in the bulletins, but I, I mentioned to you last week that verse 28 of the previous chapter attaches to this. So let me start with 16, 28. Assuredly, I say to you, 
There are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Now, if you go on into verse 10, verses 10 through 13 There's a little account there of how the disciples began to ask about Elijah coming first. That appears in Matthew and Mark. It's not in Luke's account. Luke just ends the account of this right with uh, them deciding or them being told not to talk about it to anybody. But uh, I'm going to consider those verses by themselves next week as well. And it's a little preview for Thursday night because the whole thing about uh, the scribes saying that Elijah come first comes first. Guess where that appears in the Old Testament? Malachi chapter 4, which happens to be this Thursday night study. So if you want a little preview of next Sunday, come on over for a Bible study on Thursday night for the last chapter of the Old Testament. Okay, so here we go. Now, uh, verse 28 of chapter 16 is important, and I should point out to you This is a curious thing that I can't really say I know the answer for, but you know that the chapter numbers and verse numbers are not originally part of the Bible. When God had the Bible, when the scriptures were being written, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and all the others didn't scribble in all these little numbers and everything else. Those were added centuries later, and they are an invaluable and wonderful and probably the most practical tool that all of us take for granted is the reference system in the Bible, which, which was put in there. But for reasons that I can't explain, this verse 28 was left as part of chapter 16 and as part of that previous story. But what's curious to me about it is in the Gospel of Mark, that is not so. The, the transfiguration story actually appears in chapter 9, of the Gospel of Mark, and chapter 9, verse 1, is the same thing as chapter 16 and verse 28. So when the people came along and gave us the chapter numbers and verse numbers in the Bible, they attached 
this saying to the previous chapter, but the Gospel of Mark, they they attached this saying to the following passage. And I think that the way that it's done, maybe they just did that to tease us. They were trolling us 2,000 years before trolling was a thing, right? Well, not quite 2,000 years. But in any case, but what happens is, uh, what we have is a statement in the beginning of chapter 17 that says, now after six days, Jesus took. And so, as I've explained, the fact that a very specific amount of time is mentioned is not just a casual passing detail. There would be no need to mention that unless there was a deliberate attempt by the author to attach what was said before it to it. Okay? So that's why I, and, and I will point out also that what Jesus says in verse 28 is that there are some standing here on, who shall not taste death till they what? See the Son of Man. See the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And if you look over at verse 9 of chapter 17, it says, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them saying, tell the what? You following me? Over verse 9 in chapter 17 there, Jesus commanded them saying, tell the, the vision to no one, right? So you have verse 28 saying, You're not, there are some standing here, and it was disciples who were there, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And then you have verse 9 calling this, what happened, a vision, right? So that's even thematically, I think, that verse 28 connects with the beginning of chapter 17. All right, that's a little of the grammatical housekeeping for you. Now let's get into the subject of this because it's very important. What do these guys get? Well, they get what I just mentioned in verse 9. They get a vision of the kingdom. Wow. I mean, Jesus said, there are some of you standing here who are not going to taste death. What does he mean when he says taste death? Well, he certainly has said in many other cases that the person who believes in him never dies, right? So I just want you to think about that for a minute. We'll be talking about this a little bit in youth group tonight. It's going to be a great message. But listen, if you're in Christ, you never die. Death has no power over you. So when he says here, some who taste death, what he's talking about, obviously, what? Is their physical death. Because the sense of physical death is not a finality for a Christian, right? He speaks of it as tasting death. So even Jesus himself tasted death, but he's not dead. And every one of his children taste death. Moses, who's mentioned in the story here, tasted death. Elijah didn't. Elijah was one of the two people in the Old Testament who was just raptured right up out of the world, alive. Who was the other one? There, very good, very good. You knew I was going to ask that. Good. So, but Moses, Moses uh, tasted it. Jesus tasted it. And he says, and you know what? If you're in Christ and we live unto the day uh, before the Lord returns, we will taste it as well. But you won't die. Because who you are on the inside, your eternal soul, if you're in Christ, never dies. Isn't that awesome? There's no reason, even though we may taste death, there's no reason to fear it because it has no power over us. It, it itself, the book of Revelation teaches, is an enemy whose death itself is an enemy whose days are numbered 
and death itself will be cast into the lake of fire, and death will be no more in Christ's kingdom. That's the unique and special gift that is offered to you by God through what Christ accomplished when he died on the cross. I hope that never grows old on you. I hope you celebrate that always. I hope you're always thanking God and praising God for that. If you're in Christ, listen, you're never going to die. You'll physically pass pass through something that is the death of your body, but who you are is never going to die. So he's talking about their physical death. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, we can very easily dismiss that as a reference to the second coming of Christ because I would submit to you, as plain as the nose on my face, that everyone who was standing there talking with him has tasted death and Jesus hasn't returned yet, right? See, that's why I get paid the big bucks, to make the really intelligent observations like that. So what is he talking about? If he's not talking about, when he says the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, he's not talking about that final act that all of the Old Testament prophets, the, old, the minor prophets that we've been studying, Jesus himself, the apostles in the New Testament, right? certainly the book of Revelation, they all talk about the return of the Messiah coming. You know, and that's awesome. So what he's talking about then, since, since, uh, since there were some of the disciples standing there with him who were not going to taste death until they saw it, he's obviously referring to this glimpse of his coming kingdom that they were about to receive. So you have Jesus saying this thing, and that's why the after six days appears in the beginning of chapter 17, to show us that Jesus said it, And then six days later, it happened. And Mark says the same thing after six days. Luke actually says about eight days, right? Don't get hung up on that. He used the word about. About means it's an approximation. And six and eight are close enough for me, right? So Matthew says six. Mark says six. Luke says about eight. But And and I don't know about you, but there's something about the fact that those are different that is an excellent corroboration of the validity of the of the claim that Jesus actually said this because if all you had were in the Bible verbatim, 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 verbatim every fact, you would, you, would, you would suspect that people just conspired to tell the same story. But the fact that you get a slightly different detail, you get an exact from Matthew and Mark, but you get an approximation from Luke, points to an independence of thought that makes the veracity of the claim being made quite reliable right? So that's an awesome thing. But that time figure is given there, obviously in a literary sense, to connect uh, this to what Jesus just said. Jesus said, there are some standing here who should not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Then six days later, he takes three of them up on the mountain and shows them the kingdom of God. Six days later, a prophecy fulfilled. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, right? And Peter, James, and John, I just want to point this out because there's a passage here uh, when, when they're up there. Well, actually, let me save that point. There's a better spot, I think, that I can put that in. So he takes Peter, James, and John. I'll just say for now, it's not the first time you see Jesus separate Peter, 
James, and John off from the other three. Jesus had all of his disciples, the, mass, the group of people, all the, the women and everyone who followed him. Then he had his inner circle of 12, the 12, and one of those was a traitor, right, and ended up being replaced. But uh, he had that inner circle. And then even within that, Jesus seems to have had an especially close group, which included Peter and the two brothers, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, James and John, right? So Jesus takes those three, and it says they go up. He led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And it doesn't say that they knew why they were going up. They had act, They obviously, a little less than a week before that, heard Jesus say that some of them are going to see the kingdom of God. I don't know if they had that on their minds, but it tells us in verse 2, just just very abruptly in the text, and he was transfigured before them. I'm sure I've shared this in times past, but the Greek word is, is something you learn in your, your elementary school science classes, uh, metamorphose, right? So Jesus metamorphosized right in front of them. That is what about him drastically what they could see about him drastically changed. And with that point, I want to say that this vision of the kingdom of God that they get, there's not a ton of detail related to the kingdom of God that's revealed in the writing of this passage. It's a glimpse. It's a taste. It's obviously not in all of its fullness, though some of the really important aspects of the kingdom of God are there. But what really comes out of this passage are the lessons. It's not so much the substance of what the kingdom of God is, but what this vision of the kingdom of God did in them and what this vision of the kingdom of God ought to do in us. So let's real quick just go through the details and then I have, I have three distinct lessons for them and for every Christian, for all of us. There are three distinct lessons lessons about this vision that every one of us should take. But first, a quick look at the details. Number one, we see that Jesus was completely changed right here. He was transformed before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. So one of the things that you can conclusively derive from this description is that in the kingdom of God, Jesus, and presumably we, are not going to look anything like what we look like now, right? When we are, when the end comes and the dead in Christ are raised and then those who are alive and remain are caught up, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15 that we will be transformed, kind of like transfigured. We will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye, when the end comes, and the end is coming, when the end comes, which is known only to the Lord himself, when that end comes, we're going to be changed. Just like Jesus here was changed in an instant right before them, we are going to be changed. We're going to have bodies that don't get sick anymore. We're going to have bodies that don't get injured anymore. We're going to have eyes that don't dim. We're going to have ears that never stop being able to hear. You know, Pastor Lou is never going to have to go, huh, 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 so, like I do all the time. Oh, I, I realize it's a bad quality that I have years of playing music, I think, but I'm always asking people to repeat themselves. Maybe that's because I'm a little slow, but mostly it's because I'm like hard of hearing a little bit. Oh, there goes my paper. Look at that. 
Okay. So, I'll be able to bend over and pick things up without grunting really loud. Actually, I don't know if that's true. Well, anyway. But we're going to be changed in the kingdom of God. Listen, what you're looking at down here now, some of you look just fine. Others of us, maybe not so fine. I'm in the latter category. But we're all going to be changed into something different, something where there's no sickness, there's no tears, there's no death. Wow. So that get, they get that glimpse of the kingdom. He was bright. His, 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 look at this. His clothes became as white as the light. How white is light? I don't know. How do you quantify that? But that's how Matthew describes it here in his writing. All right? His face shone like the sun. Don't go outside and look at the sun, but if you do, it's going to hurt your eyes, and your eyes are going to be dim. I mean, you'll get new eyes, but don't, like, force the process here or anything like that. Just wait. Just be patient. All right? But listen, his face shone like the sun. Now, if his face... Now, maybe that's just a descriptive figure. It doesn't literally mean, like, the sun, or maybe it does. But whatever it was, they ended up on the ground. All right, which we'll discuss in a little minute. Now, the next characteristic. So the first thing is, is that there was a completely different physical appearance of the people who were there, including Jesus. Second, people appeared. So there's people there. And we're told Moses and Elijah appeared there, which is an indication of what? The saints will be there. There will be people there. I mean, that's something that like, we take for granted, but we think of his kingdom now, and you think of Christ, and you think of God the Father, and you think of maybe angels and all this wonderful, glorious stuff going on, but when we appear in his kingdom, man, we're going to be surrounded by all the other saints who have lived down through all the ages, all of those who have been saved by God's grace through faith. We're all going to be there. Amen? Amen. Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him, and I wondered how that conversation went. The Gospel of Luke adds the detail that, uh, in, in Luke's account of this, it adds the detail that Moses and Elijah, when they talked to him, they were speaking about his death, right? So they were talking about Jesus, but it gives no details as to how the conversation actually went. Like, why were Moses and Elijah talking to him about his death? It's not that, it's not that Jesus needed any coaching from Moses and Elijah. Jesus was the creator of Moses and Elijah, Right? Jesus is the God of Moses and Elijah. So anyway, we'll talk about that more in a minute here. But there's people there. And then as you read on, it says, uh, I'll come to this bit. Well, let's just do it now. It says, then Peter answered and said to Jesus, this is in a way almost a little funny, says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. True, right? And, you know, I don't know if that can be stated any more Uh, it can be stated too strongly. Peter says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. Do you think when you arrive in God's kingdom, that's going to be your attitude too? Oh, I think so. Oh, man. Listen, life on earth was rough. Life on earth had its struggles. I battled with my own sin. I battled with discouragement. I battled with all sorts of physical struggles. I battled with all sorts of spiritual, emotional struggles problems in my own life that held me back people around me feel like attacking me all the time and everything listen 
I know one thing. If you're among Christ's elect, if you're among those who have believed the gospel, you're going to one day arrive in a place where you're going to say the same thing. Lord, it's good for me to be here. And I can tell you what, it is going to be good for us to be there. So Peter says, he answered, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Even if Peter realizes that, just getting a vision of it. You know, we're, we'll actually be there one day, right? And he says, if you wish, let us make here three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Why did Peter say that? I don't really know. It doesn't really say. It's possible some have posited that he says it because they're out in the wilderness and what he has in his own mind maybe is the wanderings of his ancestors in the wilderness and kind of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, where that come from. Maybe that's in his mind. But if you read the other accounts of this, Luke especially, it adds a detail that Matthew doesn't. Anyone know what that detail is? I'll give you a hint. It's not the only time in the Bible that Jesus took Peter, James, and John with them to pray, and they, they fell asleep. That's exactly right. So here Luke adds that, that Peter was heavy from sleep. And also the detail is added that, uh, and I forget if it's in Mark or Luke, but in one of the two of them, um, the detail is added that when Peter said this, he didn't even know what he was saying. You ever have that happen to you? It's a very human reaction, isn't it? I mean, listen, I mean, I don't, it, it, he's, you have the, you, sometimes you're asleep and something will happen that'll suddenly wake you up or, or, you're, or you oversleep or something like that and you jump up out of bed and you feel like you need to talk to someone and like what comes out of your mouth is basically just gibberish. Has that ever happened to you? Has that ever happened to anybody you know? Have you ever had to suddenly, don't go home and try this tonight and then blame me. Or if you do, don't say I told you to because I'm not. But if suddenly in the middle of the night somebody wakes up from sleep, they might just say something like, oh, uh, 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 did, we, did, you, did you wash the car? Did, did you, you know, whatever. Something completely irrelevant to what's going on. That's kind of, I think, the idea is that, now listen, I want you to think some. There's all kinds of things you can wake up to that might give you a start. Maybe you're asleep and you hear a sound. Maybe you have a pet and the pet jumps on you, right? Maybe, uh, I, I don't know, there's all sorts of things. A smell, something could like, like wake you up. And these guys woke up to Jesus, an unrecog- virtually unrecognizable, bright, shining like the sun Jesus talking to Moses and Elijah. That would freak me out a little bit, Right? And so, whoa, 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 oh, let us make three tabernacles for you. One for Moses, one for Elijah, and, and one for himself, right? So anyway, that's, so there's, there are, I actually believe there is a tiny bit of levity in there to show us that. And it's also not the first time that Peter, James, and John fell asleep while Jesus was praying, is it? Right? On the very night he was betrayed, after they had the Lord's Supper for the first time, they went out and they went to the garden, and it was Peter, James, and John who went with him, and Jesus went then off a little farther by himself to pray, and Peter, James, and John fell asleep. And one of the times, he came back to them a few times, one of the times he came back to them was, and he told them, wake up, they're here. And Judas Iscariot had arrived with that mob to... Uh, to arrest Jesus. So, interestingly, not the first time that that happened. But in any case, um, what you have here is uh, Peter, James, and John asleep. They wake up. They have a very human reaction to it. But all of that is about to be blown right away. 
while he was still speaking, so while he's going through this, uh, 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 whatever it may have been, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And Luke's account of this actually says that they entered this cloud, right? So, so this bright cloud overshadows them, and I'm not getting the sense that they flew up into it. I'm getting the sense that it came down and settled on them. And suddenly, while they're saying all this, do, should we build three tabernacles? Suddenly they're in this thick, bright cloud. And then a voice comes out of the cloud. And it says, this voice, this is my beloved son. Now just that saying alone identifies who the voice is. Calling Jesus son, so obviously it's the father. It's the same voice that came out of the heavens when Jesus got baptized. It's with the same words, basically, right? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Before I break down a little bit the the qualities of what God said there, this has for years always amazed me. And that is that when God speaks there, who is he speaking to? He's not speaking to Jesus. He's not speaking to Moses and Elijah. He's talking to Peter. I mean, listen, man. They woke up out of a sound sleep to Jesus transfigured, Moses and Elijah, and before they could get a coherent sentence out of their mouths, they were inside a cloud, and God the Father spoke to them and told them, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Listen to him. Listen to him. Right? This, this wonderful glimpse of the kingdom. And do you know what happened when they, listen, they weren't asleep anymore. I can tell you that right now. Right? Nor would you be, nor, nor would I be, right? So they, they, it says that uh, when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. Wouldn't be the last time that would happen to the Apostle John, at least, right? John being one of the ones that was there, right? You will see the same thing with John in the beginning of the book of Revelation, right? Beginning, here we go again with John. John is sitting on the island of Patmos one day and suddenly the Lord Jesus appears to him in, in a vision and, and, and Jesus is like the hair is white as snow and he, he's got the eyes are like fire and the flaming sword coming out of his mouth and the apostle John falls down as a dead man. What do you think this is supposed to teach us about God? Anything? Are we just supposed to be impressed? Is it, just, is it just a test of whether we believe it or not? Is it just an entertaining fact to make us really go, wow, the Bible's cool? The Bible describes God as an all-consuming fire. He is holy. 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 He is to be feared. He is to be reverenced. He is to be exalted. He is to be believed. Every word of it. He is to be trusted. He is to be worshipped. He is to be obeyed. He is to be glorified in us. They got this glimpse of the kingdom 
what was really at the heart of it, who knows? What, I mean, who can judge what's inside God? But I'll tell you what, one of the things that comes out of it is what? You better recognize who God is. I, you know, I don't, how do you measure what kind of a person you are? I don't really know in the grand scheme of things what kind of man I am, but I'm pretty sure I'm not as much a man as Peter, James, or John. And these guys, when God spoke to them, down. Right? That's God. He's not someone to just tritely deal with. When you walk before him, you walk before him in reverence and awe. As you go through your life day by day, God is not just some flippant addition to what your days already are. When we, when we go through our lives, every word that comes out of our mouths, you, just, you started the service by singing, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. Listen, the reason why that needs to be the cry of every Christian's heart is because of this. One sentence and they were down. Now, disciples heard it. They fell on their faces. They were greatly afraid. But here comes Jesus. And what does he do? This is Jesus being Jesus. This is so Jesus, right? They're down on the ground after all this, and Jesus just touches them and says what? Arise and don't be afraid. May I say to you, that's what God says to you and I as well. Get up. Don't be afraid. Listen, fearful with the proper awe and respect and reverence for God, yes. Yes. Never lose that. But the fear that says God is just going to destroy me, God is just going to eliminate me. I can't be in the presence of this and I'd rather just be dead. You know, I don't deserve this. Of course you don't deserve it. I don't deserve to know God. Of course I don't. I don't deserve to call him my God and my Father. Of course I don't. You know, but you know what? There's the touch. There's the touch of grace. The touch of the gracious one on the shoulder that says, get up. Don't be afraid. May I say to you, the only person who has ever existed who can with authority say to you in the presence of God, arise and don't be afraid, is our Jesus. You know why? Because of what God said. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Is God pleased with us? Is God pleased with the life that I've lived? Look, I make it, it's a tricky thing because in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we make it our aim to be well-pleasing to him in everything. So we do as Christians live and we make it our aim to be well-pleasing to him. But do we ever really succeed in and of ourselves? To make it your aim and to actually achieve it are two different things. In the end, in the ultimate sense, in the grandest sense of it all, 
in what is most important and matters the most, it's not that God is pleased with us. It's that God is pleased with Christ. It's that God is pleased with His Son. God is pleased with the love and the worship and the obedience and the perfect, spotless holiness of His Son. And when Jesus, the perfect, spotless Son of God, surrendered His life as a sacrifice for our sins and was buried in the grave and on the third day rose from the dead, God's wrath against our sin was satisfied. God is pleased with His Son. And when I, listen, God calls me and God calls you and God calls the world to repentance. He calls the world to humility, repentance, and ultimately faith. I mean, faith is really the key thing. He calls us to humility and repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And by God's grace, through faith, we are saved. It's not my standing in his kingdom. My standing in his kingdom. My, don't be afraid, get up is not dependent on anything that I have done. Because if it's all based on me, then I belong exactly where they were, face pinned to the ground. But the reason that I can look forward to rising one day, the reason that I can look forward to life in his kingdom is not because of how he feels about me. It's because of how he feels about his son. And all of my trust and all of my faith, and all of my hope is wrapped up in Jesus. Yes? Most important person in your life is Jesus. The person you should be pouring out your life in love for is Jesus. The person you should seek, be seeking to learn more about and grow closer to and emulate in your actions and your words and your deeds is Jesus. The one that you should trust is not yourself. Oh, I've been a Christian for all these years and I still battle with this and I still struggle with this. Well, okay, I'm going to pray for strength. But in the end, I'm not going to trust in my own ability to conquer this or deal with that. I trust in Jesus. My faith is built on nothing less than what? Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. That is to say, I dare not trust the sweetest little thing I can find about myself. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy, completely, totally lean, lean, on Jesus' name. Yes? Boy, the hymn, writer, the hymn writer got that right. I'll tell you that right now. Now, so, verse 9 says, They came down from the mountain, and Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one. Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. I have three quick lessons for you now. So you see, you see what we have. In the vision of the kingdom of God, in the substance of it, you see that there's a completely different appearance. You see that the saints are there. You hear of the voice of God in power. You see of the, the terrifying 
but in a good way. The holy and purifying and awesome presence of God is there. So you see all those things. But now what are, what are the lessons here? Because like, he gives them that and then tells them, don't tell anybody. And then after he rises from the dead, then presumably they begin to tell people. And when the Bible is written, there it appears. What do we take from all of this? Well, I saw three distinct lessons that you can see in this. And I want to show you these three things. Number one, this passage teaches of the supremacy of Christ over anyone or anything else. Number two, this passage teaches of the supremacy of the gospel in comparison to anything else anybody can know. And number three, this passage teaches of the supremacy of Scripture in order to inform us and train us and help us to grow. Three things, the supremacy of Christ, the supremacy of the gospel, and the supremacy of Scripture. These are the things that are conveyed in this lesson. It's more than just, hey guys, let me give you a peek at what the kingdom of God looks like. No, there were lessons wrapped up in it. He taught in this the supremacy of himself, very clearly. The supremacy of the gospel, maybe indirectly, but it's definitely there. And then, of course, the supremacy of Scripture, which were not necessarily shown in this passage, but were shown in a passage later in the Bible where Peter, who is one of the three, looks back on this in reflection in Second Peter chapter 1. So we'll look at that in just a moment. First thing, ready? The supremacy of Christ. Very simple point. Who appeared with Jesus? Elijah? Moses. Moses, right? Who are they? Who are they? Well, they're people you read about in the Old Testament, right? Moses. Moses is most closely associated, perhaps, with what? The law. The law, right? That's very good. Elijah was perhaps the first and the greatest of what? The prophets. There is no book in the Bible that bears his name, but there is much text. There is probably more narrative in the Old Testament concerning the prophet Elijah than any other prophet, maybe except uh, Samuel. But but, uh, the other prophets, most of what we know about, we know from their own writings. Elijah is a prophet who has written extensively about Right? And it was a very powerful prophet because of in the very earliest days of the divided kingdom how he stood in the face of the northern tribes king to, uh, and, and the prophets of Baal which he had allowed to rise up and become objects of worship in great idolatry and you can read about all of that for yourself. But if you want to take it this way, Moses and Elijah appeared talking with Jesus about his death. Moses take as a representative of the law, which bears his name. Even Jesus referred to it as the law of Moses, right? It's the law of God, but it was given through Moses. Even John chapter 1 says that the law was given through Moses. And then you have Elijah, representative of the prophets. And right there, you can very simply see that Moses and Elijah are representative of the law and the prophets. And this is actually, this phrase, the law and the prophets, is actually the phrase that very often even Jesus himself referred to the scriptures as. 
right? The law and the prophets. So you have Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets appearing there, and you have Jesus appearing there with them, and then you have this voice who comes from heaven. And the voice that comes from heaven is God the Father, and what he does not say is, you really need to listen to Moses and you really need to listen to Elijah. No, he says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Not to denigrate Moses, not to denigrate Elijah, not to denigrate the law, not to denigrate the prophets, but to show that the law and the prophets all what? They point to Jesus. Do you see how this passage of Scripture, do you see how this is a visual picture of the supremacy of Jesus over even everything that was rightfully and truthfully important to them? Moses, Elijah. Listen, Moses' law contained one of the earliest and most important references to the coming of the Messiah. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses said, a prophet like me is going to rise up. It's Deuteronomy 18. He's going to rise up and he's going to teach the people. He's going to lead the people. It's a reference to the Messiah who would come. And the prophets, I mean, forget about it. I mean, when we read, when we read in the prophets, especially as we've been going through the minor prophets because they're, they're shorter and they're a little easier maybe to get through and get to the message sort of quickly, right? So you're going through these prophets and every one of them is rebuking some facet of what's going on in Judah or in Israel. Turn back to the Lord. Turn back to the Lord. But then every one of them goes also where? To tell us about the coming kingdom and about the coming Messiah. That was always their message. It was like, you need to repent. You need to repent. If you don't repent, I'm going to destroy you. But one day I'm going to send my... Even Malachi, who we're going through right now, says, Behold, I send my messenger before my face. And then after him is going to come the messenger of the covenant. was a reference to the Messiah himself. And it can, the, the prophets are constantly speaking of this kingdom that they're getting a glimpse of right here, coming and coming and coming. And God, with his own voice, is announcing to them, here's the kingdom, here's your king. Here's your king. Listen to him. Everything about the law and everything about the prophets points to Jesus. Think about it. All those sacrifices in the law what were those sacrifices for? Well, for various reasons, but some of the bigger ones were, to, were to, 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 make, to atone for sin in some way. And as the book of Hebrews says, they could never take sins away. But at least in the temporary religious sense, in a way that satisfied God, not ever permanently, because a person is always justified by grace through faith, but in this religious system, they were painting a picture of the permanent redemption that would come with Christ. But they were sacrificing these animals over and over and over and over and over again. What were all those sacrifices doing? They weren't really taking their sins away. As I would point out to you, Abraham was justified by faith before there was any law. That's one of the main points in the early chapters of the book of Romans. 
So salvation has always been by God's grace through faith. But then the law came along to point out our sin, to give that system of sacrifice, which would put a lot of emphasis on our sins and the, the, the disgusting nature of sin because you were slaying all these animals and sprinkling all this blood all over the place and burning things on the altar and waving things, you know. None of that could ever take away sin. But then what was it? What was it for? It was all to show that ultimately one day God would send his own lamb. God would provide his own sacrifice. The blood of God's own sacrifice would be sacrificed on his altar, which we call the cross, which we call Calvary, which we call Golgotha. And the blood of Jesus was shed and he died and he rose from the dead to take sins away from people. And then the prophets were constantly screaming, Messiah is coming, Messiah is coming, Messiah is coming. So everything the law pointed ahead to, everything the prophets pointed ahead to, everything Moses pointed ahead to, everything Elijah pointed ahead to, all of it comes together in Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. He, Jesus, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, everything whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, like, like, like forces that you can't see, even that was made by him. All things were created through him and for him. And he, that's Jesus, he is before all things and in him all things consist. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He, Jesus, may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him, Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. And by him, Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself, by him, Jesus, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his, Jesus, cross. Wow. That's Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15 going forward. Christ Jesus is in this vision of the kingdom. The important thing is Christ himself. He is supreme over everything. Second thing in this passage you see is the supremacy of the gospel. Why do I say that? Well, there's something about the fact that Jesus instructed them not to tell anyone. Why would Jesus tell them, don't tell anyone yet? Don't tell anyone. Listen, we know from other passages of Scripture that there were occasions where the people, not really fully understanding the redemptive purposes and and what God was going to do, and, and the Lord not wanting anything to interfere with the fact that Jesus would go to the cross and die for our sins, 
Jesus would go away. Jesus would perform a miracle and heal someone and tell them, don't tell anybody, right? Because there are places in Scripture where we're told that the people wanted to come and take Jesus by force and make them their king. So maybe there's a little bit of that here. But I think there's more to it than that. Let me tell you something. We are not saved, listen very carefully, we are not saved by visions, dreams, experiences. We're not saved by things that we perceive or things that we feel. And if word of this began to spread, what would happen is, Lord, show us that we might believe. Lord, show us. Listen, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, one of the ways they mocked him was, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us. Come down from the cross that we may see and believe. What did Jesus say to Thomas after his resurrection? You're blessed because you see, but blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. Listen, these guys, Peter, James, and John, they weren't seeking signs. They weren't seeking visions. Jesus said, come on with me. And Jesus chose to show them this and had a great effect in their lives. But I think one of the reasons why Jesus tells them, and this is the lesson here, don't tell anyone about this, is because he doesn't want them putting their faith in some vision or some experience. He showed them a vision to encourage them, but then he didn't want them to go around preaching about a vision that they saw. You understand? And that happens a lot even to this day. People write books, they make movies, they do all kinds of, I saw Jesus, I saw, oh yes, you can believe because I saw this, I went to heaven, I did this, I did that. No, that's not how people are saved. God's redemptive plan has one agent of salvation only and that is the gospel. The gospel. And even this vision of the kingdom was not going to interfere with the preaching of the gospel. That's why he says, tell the vision to no one. Listen to this. I'm not telling you what it is because I don't want you to take the time to turn there because I'm running out of time. And I want to make sure I get it all in. So listen to this. Ready? Watch this. Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. Yes? Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. So the Apostle Paul here, when he's writing this passage to the Corinthian church, he says, he says I haven't come to baptize. That's not what saves. I've come to preach the gospel. That's what does. And even in my preaching, I haven't come trying to be eloquent or tricky or clever or seductive with my words. Plain, simple message. Because I want the faith to be in the gospel message and not in the fact that you have an eloquent, smooth-sounding deliverer of it. Right? Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross, and this is the way God wants it, It's foolishness to those who are perishing. That's to those who don't believe it, they think it's nonsense. And that's why it's important that when the gospel is preached, it's not about visions and dreams and, you know, dramatic experience. It's a plain, simple message. God made you. 
we've all broken his laws and we all stand condemned before him. But God's love for you is that he sent his son, who's Jesus, who shed his blood and died and rose from the dead. And if you put your faith in him, you will be saved. And that's it. That's what he wants your faith in. Nothing else. That's the gospel message. Short, simple, without the added element of human capacity to be dramatic. There's a reason why it has to be that way. It's not just for the salvation of the believer, it's for the condemnation of the non-believer. Hello, have you ever thought about it that way? Listen to what he says. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. He's not saying that in a derogatory way. That's the way God, he's saying, I don't spice it up. Because the simple message of the cross is for the condemnation of those who don't believe. In the end, God, who is sovereign, would have it that the gospel is the thing that delineates. It's the sword that divides between people. You believe it, and it's life to you. Or you reject it because it's foolishness to you. And if people make fun of us, and if people denigrate us, and if people think we're foolish, and if people think we're unscientific, uneducated, unsophisticated because of this simple message back and forth again and again and again and again and again, so be it. We're in good company. Yes? For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But for us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Let's not get in God's way of doing that. I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God, ready, through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, show us your kingdom. That's why, listen, that's why he said, don't tell anybody. That's why he said, don't tell anybody. Paul nails it. For Jews request a sign. Oh, Jesus, if you'll just give me a glimpse of your kingdom, I'll believe. That's why he said, don't you tell anybody about this. I gave this to you, but I don't want, because because I'm going to have my gospel preached by you, and that's what's going to delineate who's saved or not. Not, I saw this, I experienced, you know. No, right? Jews request a sign. Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, stumbling block. To Greeks, it's foolishness. But to those who are called to God's elect, to those who believe, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You want a sign? Christ is your sign. You want wisdom? Christ is your wisdom. The gospel is supreme. So in this, Jesus telling them, don't tell anyone, we see the supremacy of the gospel. But there's one more thing, and that's the supremacy of Scripture. Why do I say this? Not because of anything that occurs in this passage. This one you've got to turn to with me, and this is where we'll end. 2 Peter chapter 1. Turn there. 
Second Peter chapter one and verse 16. I know it's hard to sit and listen to a sermon and I commend you all so much for sitting and listening to this. And I know that this isn't, it's not entertaining for me particularly, but you know what? My heart gets on fire when I think about these things. Because because this is what God needs for us to hear. This is what the creator of the heavens and the earth screams through this book into his creation that he wants for people to know. He wants his children to grow and be on fire through these things. He wants the lost to believe that they might come to life for the first time for real. Yes? Thank you for doing the work of sitting and listening to a long sermon. I do try not to be boring or long-winded. But you know what? We, 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 we need to get at what this is about. This book lies dormant in this world. This book sits and collects dust and has nobody who looks into it and reads it anymore. We've got to know. We've got to what God did giving us this. And this is what this last point is about. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. No, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We didn't follow a bunch of silly stories. Not a bunch of sentiments. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now this is Peter writing this. This is Peter giving after he, because Jesus said, don't tell anyone about this. So after the, the, the Passion Week happened and, and the Lord rose from the dead and went back to heaven, now Peter is like loosed and he writes it down. So Peter here is now giving you his, here's what Peter says was important about going up there on that mountain and getting that. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty For he received from God the Father honor and glory. That's what we talked about before. God the Father spoke and made him the preeminent one. He received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now ready? Here's the key. And so we have... The prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the message that comes out of the Old Testament, the prophetic word that comes out of the Old Testament scriptures that pointed to the coming of the Messiah. And what he's saying is, we didn't follow any stories when we declared to you that Jesus is the Messiah. We went up on the mountain and we saw his glory with our own eyes and we heard God's voice confirm it with our own ears. Now, before you think that Peter is leaning on the experience, read on. Watch this. And... The morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of what? Scripture. Peter points them to the Bible. 
No prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. That is another way, that's, a, that's maybe a wordy, more eloquent way of saying that no prophecy in your Old Testament is through the men that wrote it down. When you read Malachi, that's not Malachi's word. When you read Haggai, when you read Zephaniah, Zechariah, when you read Daniel, when you read Amos, when you read all these guys who looked ahead, that's not their words. No prophecy of Scripture was just privately from those guys. It was all from the Lord. It says, knowing this verse, no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man. But look at this. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, which is a picture of all Scripture being given by inspiration of God, as Paul says it. You see what he says? Peter says, here's what we got. Here was our takeaway from going up on that mountain with Jesus. Our takeaway was not Jesus must be the Messiah because of what we've seen here. No, the takeaway was this. The Bible and everything it says about Jesus must be true. And he gave us this. We didn't ask for it. We weren't seeking signs. We didn't ask him to show. He showed us this. So we would be encouraged to know for sure that the Bible was true. Listen, that may sound like splitting hairs to you, but it's not. We don't put our faith in experiences, but that particular experience caused them to understand at a time when they needed it most that every word from the prophets about the Messiah was true and reliable. So Peter's takeaway from what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration was Scripture is supreme. The three supremes you come away with, the supremacy of Christ, the supremacy of the gospel, and the supremacy of Scripture. Aside from the glimpse of the kingdom of God, which is very cool and which is very awesome, the lessons for your life are that Christ is supreme, the gospel is supreme, and the scriptures are supreme. And that's what every Christian needs to strengthen them, to cause them to grow, to guide them through their lives. Ken and Fanny, come on back up here, and let's all stand up together, and we're going to sing our final hymn.